Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well and healthy. In this episode, we're so excited to have Professor Brian Keating, the host of the Into Impossible podcast, and he's also the Chancellor Distinguished Professor of Physics at UC San Diego, where he and his team is studying the origin and evolution of space, time, and matter. He's also the author of the Losing the Nobel Prize, which is selected one of the best science books by Science Friday, Amazon, and Science News. And it was all selected to best cosmology books of all the time by Book Authority. I really felt touched by this episode since we discuss how childhood can affect you as a scientist. And we also covered part of the hunger came in academia and the insane amount of pressure that we face most of the time. And the most important thing, how we can have an open platform for scientific discourse where we can include a science outside academy to have a discussion or debate about certain scientific points. And I think that's one of the calls of the Professor Brian Keating podcast. It shouldn't go without saying that Professor Brian Keating has attracted many prides mind in our scientific society. For example, like Sarah Rogan Burroughs, which is uh, uh, won a Nobel Prize uh, this year, and James Simons, and Stephen Wolfram, and Eric Weinstein. In the end of the episode, Professor Brian Keating asked me a few questions. And one of the questions, which is uh, the signature question in his podcast, what does something was impossible and become possible? And I urge every one of you to think about something in, in your life was really impossible and you managed to do or you still aspire to have in your life. I would like also to mention that you can find the video format of this discussion in Professor Prime YouTube channel. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode and thank you. Hello, Professor Prime. Thanks so much for joining IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. It's such an honor to have uh, you in the book. Uh, it's an honor is mine. I've been following you for six months or more now and listening to your podcast uh, as part of my regular podcast diet. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Such honor. So I would like to ask you first, how you would like to define yourself? Well, I think firstly, I define myself as a father and as a husband, as a friend, as a human being, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who is curious about the nature of the universe, somebody who is relentless and, and a scholar uh, and someone who's very lazy and <laughs> doesn't, doesn't get around to all the things and all those categories that I want to. But uh, Hopefully I'll have, uh, I'll have more time as my kids grow up a little bit more and it gets a little bit easier. But uh, what I really love to do is learn. And that's the thing I've always loved about life. My mother tells me since I was a two-year-old, I wouldn't sleep at night. And that uh, comes in handy as an astronomer. That's interesting. So actually I have a lot of interesting things, but I would like to go back to your child. Do you have any memories about your childhood? You were interested in science or technology? As a kid, I was very interested in science and technology. I grew up outside New York City uh, on Long Island, it's called, and uh, in that area, it was very kind of uh, peaceful, very nature uh, filled with nature, natural beauty, the ocean. <clears throat> I was always mesmerized by the ocean. I love collecting rocks and shells and yeah. kind of just looking at them and seeing what kind of patterns they make. And it's funny because my kids will do that too nowadays. They'll pick up a sand dollar, they'll pick up a, uh, you know, a jellyfish <laughs> uh, and they wanna see what makes these things work. And I think the interface between kind of the curiosity that one has when one is young can be translated into a career. And I often, I was asking one of my sons about this yesterday, uh, you know, what are you, what do you, lo you lose track of time doing? So in what, 
in what uh, activity that you do do you lose track? And besides video games or besides YouTube, uh, it's really, he loves to read. He loves to, uh, to think about big questions and he loves to uh, kind of teach things. So I said, you know, we'll keep that in mind and, and maybe someday you will be interested in something that allows you to use that passion, intense passion for your career. And that's sort of what I did. I, was, I never thought I could get paid to be an astronomer. I mean, who, who does that? It's like, uh, it's like getting paid to be a cookie taster or something. You know, it's, and nobody's going to pay me to do it. I'll do it for free. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but in truth, if you follow your passion, if you're really um, uh, in incredibly you know, consumed and you can't not do it, it's, uh, it's something that could lead to a, to a very valuable career. I can't agree more with that. I think many students struggling with how you find your passion and most importantly, your purpose, how you find that. And if you can tell us just one example, how you can find your purpose, either in science or outside science, what are factors yeah. you think? It's funny, you know, Marwa, I, it's, it's hard to know your purpose looking forward. Sometimes you only learn your purpose looking backwards. And, uh, um, you know, if, if I think about the steps that, you know, took in my life, there might've been a few pivotal steps that define my life. Um, I think my purpose was always, honestly, to be a father, to be a husband. I think that's what I'm naturally sort of inclined to do. And I would do um, if they paid me less than they already do, uh, I would still be a father and a husband. And so I think that being a human being, being mm -hmm. having a soul, having a, uh, a, a desire to, to, to connect to other human beings, that's sort of natural. That is sort of my passion. Uh, yeah. But beyond that, I never knew that you could c combine a passion for talking to other people, for making jokes, as corny and unfunny as they may be, uh, but you could connect to the general public who has such a thirst for science, for technology. People like you and me, we are sort of doing magic. Arthur C. Clarke, who is the, um, the founding namesake of UC San Diego's Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, where I am the co-director, as well as the Into the Impossible podcast, which is one of his phrases. He said, the only way to know the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. So I always ask my guests, and I'm going to ask you later, uh, what you thought was impossible as a, young, as a young child that allowed you to then go past that boundary into the impossible. For me, it was um, overcoming uh, rejection, overcoming failure. I didn't go to the Harvards like, uh, like Professor Dan, Darren Lapome, who's a big fan of yours too. <laughs> and uh, George Whitesides, who you've had on your show, uh, but but I've I've had uh, you know I had to I had to make it a different way, and I never gave up, and I I just knew that my love of the universe and answering big questions would carry me on even when you know I feel uh, my book title obviously losing the Nobel Prize that's a spoiler I did not win the Nobel Prize, uh, but that's not, it wasn't a letdown to me it was just another uh, another goal I always say to my students in graduate school. <clears throat> I see them, the, uh, the, the, the reward for solving a problem in your thesis is a harder problem. <laughs> so it's like, you always do the easiest stuff first. You pick the lowest fruit first. So the harder uh, achievements are beyond your grasp and they always should be. And no one really gets to the promised land without struggle, so to speak. Yeah, indeed. I agree with you. A struggle, I think, and pain is part of life. And, and you have to cope with that. and makes you grow and stronger. So that's really powerful. But I, I'm curious to ask about your father. Um, 
how was the relationship and how he affected you? I think you almost in your most episode you, you mentioned him. So how was the relationship and how he affected you? Yeah, my father and I had a complex relationship here in the U.S. It's common for fathers and sons to be competitive yeah. with uh, with baseball or football, and yeah. I was always good at that. But I, my father and mother divorced when I was very young, um, uh, something like six or seven years old, and then I didn't see my father for 15 years. Uh, until I was in graduate school. I knew he was a scientist. I knew he was a great mathematician. I knew he won many awards and mm -hmm. uh, achievements, but I knew that he never won the Nobel Prize. And so for me as a kid, uh, having some anger towards him for, you know, having not been in my life, uh, estranged from my life for 15, you know, long, painful years during those formative years when a kid is a teenager, you know, yeah. falls in love for the first time, gets dumped for the first time, gets rejected from uh, the colleges that he wanted to go to, uh, et cetera. And it goes for girls as well. Uh, so for me, it was very painful. And so I wanted to supersede him to exceed his accomplishments. And I know it's a very small-minded aspect of my character, but I want to be honest that that was an animating impulse for me to win a Nobel Prize would be to forever prove my superiority as a scientist. Uh, and that was part of the motivation. It wasn't a hundred percent. It was part of it. And that's a psychological side of me. I yeah. admit, I don't regret, uh, but it's not something that I would say I'm particularly proud of. That's very interesting. And uh, I think it's very complex at the same time because was incentive incentive for you as a competition with your dad or incentive to be like a curiosity? And you still have the same incentive? Yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of, uh, of, of character traits, good and bad, from my father, <clears throat> and, and especially from my mother, mostly good ones. She's still uh, alive. My father passed away, sadly, uh, very young. But, um, but we had a good relationship. We were able to reconcile towards the end of his life <clears throat> and develop a, a very deep bond that, uh, according to him, was deeper than any other father and son because we kind of paused our relationship at age six or seven and then re resumed it in my 20s when I was mature, when I was getting a PhD, when I was interested in physics. He used to joke, I don't care about playing with kids until they learn linear algebra. And, you know, yeah. um, that's a pretty high bar, you know, uh, for, for anybody, let alone a little kid. So uh, he was joking. But the fact is that, um, as you know, when you're teaching or when you're uh, as an educator, it's always more fun to teach the more advanced classes because mm -hmm. at that level, the students know almost as much as you and your job is to have them effectively surpass you. And so I feel like that, you know, kind of delay in our relationship meant he didn't have to have you know, the, the patience to deal with me learning arithmetic. And then he could just talk to me about group theory and, and, uh, and other advanced topics in science and math. So I don't regret it. I don't, you know, I'm sure it could have been easier for me as a kid. And I wouldn't wish that on, on my worst enemy to go through, you know, the kind of childhood that I had to go through because I was a child of divorce, but I had a lot of great great treasured memories from my father as well. So I think I get a lot of that curiosity, passion, anti-authority bias, um, you know, from my father. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. And I can assume you have also the emotional side. And that's, I think, leads to the question about what's the motivation behind uh, also losing, losing a Nobel Prize book. I think that yeah. you said that the same that you wanted to convey that scientists are people and scientists stereotype also neglect the positive human qualities like vulnerabilities and emotion. So if you can tell us about 
why you started about the idea of writing the book? What motivated you? So the book was written as uh, as an appeal to to non-scientists. Really, it's a, it's a memoir about what it's like to be a young scientist and and feeling like you're on the verge of a great breakthrough, and the emotions, the struggle, the competition that most people don't think about. Most people get scientists wrong in many different ways. Uh, mm -hmm. Most people think a scientist looks a certain way, has a certain upbringing has certain um, in, in, you know, intrinsic gifts <clears throat> and, and will say things like, I'm not, I had Professor Jim, Jim Gates, who's the past president of the National Society of Black Physicists on my mm -hmm. podcast multiple times. He's mm -hmm. the president-elect of the American Physical Society. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book about Einstein uh, called Proving Einstein Right. And in that book, he, he basically says, you know, most people say, I'm not Einstein, so I can't be a scientist. No, Einstein wasn't uh, Einstein for most of his life. It's only in retrospect that we realize this. And this is coming from Jim Gates, the father of supersymmetry. Oh, this guy's a titan. And he's like, I I'm not as smart as that guy. But it doesn't matter because we have a place. We have a role to play. And I want to convey that to scientists for the following reason. My book is written from the perspective of an experimental scientist, someone who builds telescopes, someone mm -hmm. who builds detectors. I don't build cool, squishy robots, but I build really cool things that can peer back to the beginning of the universe, potentially. All the books that were in existence before my book really portrayed the subject of the, of the cosmic microwave background, uh, et cetera, from a purely theoretical point of view, meaning colleagues like um, uh, Lisa Randall, uh, Max mm -hmm. Tegmark, uh, I'm thinking of Sean, Sean, Sean Carroll, Sean, um, Brian Green. All these people are brilliant and wonderful thinkers, and yet they come at it from the perspective of a, of a theoretical physicist. And from my perspective, we needed somebody that could explain how the experiments work and how the details of the instrument work. And that was very gratifying to do that. And actually, I had two people you know, endorse the book that really made a great, uh, a big impact on me. One was um, uh, Sir, uh, Sir uh, Roger Penrose, uh, who just won the Nobel Prize. And I actually just had a couple of emails with him today. He's going to come back on my podcast. I'm going to do a live question and answer with him. Uh, yeah. And he, he said it was an intriguing book. He learned something from my book. I mean, that was incredible. Uh, the other one who gave a wonderful blurb was uh, Lord Martin Rees. Uh, mm -hmm. of Cambridge. So that's rival university to Oxford. And Lord Martin said, you know, this is a great book. I just wish it didn't talk about the Nobel Prize. <laughs> but actually, you know, uh, the book has this, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm showing it for my video audience, but there's, it's hard to see. Uh, hopefully everybody has it out there. But there's three chapters about the Nobel Prize and the rest is about being a memoir of my experiences growing up, trying to learn about astronomy, uh, mm -hmm. worshiping heroes uh, of, of astronomy like Galileo and mm -hmm. even Nobel Prize winners. And uh, how does it feel to come close to your goal, whether it be uh, becoming a Nobel Prize winner or winning the World Series? You know, we just had the World Series here in America. And, you know, one team wins, one team loses. Now, is the Tampa Bay uh, Devil Rays, are they not as good? Or they, should they be shamed of not winning? Or my Padres here in San Diego? Of course not. Only one team can win it. And they can only win it basically for one year. So what, the next year they're not as good? You know, so my, my point is that you spend most of your time experiencing headwinds, adversity, uh, challenge. And so enjoy that ride. Don't only focus on the golden, gilded, 
idol of winning the Nobel Prize, for example. Yeah, that's wonderful. But I would like to ask you about your thoughts about Nobel Prize, because I think uh, you're not the only one that we have recently witnessed some time and there's a bias in who will be awarded the award and Nobel Prize and the percentage of women as well uh, who have been awarded in 55 years ago. So if you can tell us, because you brought some solution for that, what do you think about Nobel Prize in first place? How the uh, committee doing selection and can you tell us about your thought about that? Yeah. Well, one of my friends pointed out recently that since my book came out, the number of uh, female Nobel Prize winners in physics has doubled. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, it was only at, uh, at two, <laughs> so it, it's not, uh, not super significant, but, uh, but it's moving in the right direction. And just this year, my friend Andrea Guez at the, uh, at the University of California, Los Angeles, which is not mm-hmm. far from here, uh, she won the Nobel Prize. I'm hoping to have her on my podcast uh, very soon, too. So having, um, having excluded large numbers of scientists throughout the years, the most common objection I get to the Nobel Prize or, or in favor of the Nobel Prize is that, um, you know, they always do a good job and scientists aren't biased. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you've experienced some bias in science. I mean, maybe you've realized that scientists aren't uh, free of prejudice, free of judgment, free of bias. But I'll take you back uh, to official records uh, of the Nobel Committee back in the 1920s and the 19-teens. And you'll know of a scientist named Albert Einstein. We just talked about him. He came up with special relativity theory in 1905. He followed that up with an even greater discovery in Mm -hmm. 1915, uh, 1912 to 1915. And between 1905 and 1922, when he finally received the 1921 Nobel Prize, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gustav Dahlen, uh, who is Swedish, won the Nobel Prize in physics for an outstanding discovery called the Lighthouse Automatic Gas Accumulator. Now, I don't know how often you use a gas accumulator there in Europe, but uh, I've never used one myself. And yet I use general relativity every time I turn on my GPS. Um, and without it, it wouldn't work. So, uh, so now you have to ask why. Was there an exclusion principle at work? Uh, and in fact, there was. There was a man by the name of Philip Lennard, and he was Hitler's chief of Aryan science. And he didn't like people uh, that were Jewish to get recognition. In fact, he derided uh, the science that Einstein did, this cosmology, this theoretical physics. They called that Jewish science. And they said it was antithetical to Aryan physics and that they had a rule because if you won a Nobel Prize, you could nominate the winners of all future Nobel Prizes. So Lennard was, on, was the chief of Hitler's Aryan physics um, uh, uh, campaign. And so for many years, they ma- basically made a pretext that Einstein you know, didn't develop anything worthy of the Nobel Prize, but secretly they said Einstein must not win a Nobel Prize. So wow. now ask yourself, Philip Lennard won the Nobel Prize uh, in 1904, 1905, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he won it for the discovery of the photoelectric effect, which is what Einstein in part would, part would win the Nobel Prize for in 1921. Uh, so now between those times, I mean, he was a smart person. I mean, uh, William Shockley won the Nobel Prize for the invention of the transistor and advocated for what's called eugenics. He wanted to eliminate the, the uh, preponderance of African-Americans. And so you can have great scientists that are also terrible human beings. And so my perspective is uh, the Nobel Prize, by not rectifying its past sins, it mm-hmm. has committed sins against science, against the history of science. It has yeah. excluded people, and it continues to do so. And yeah. I claim in the book 
it will do so at its own peril. At some point, the Nobel Prize will either rectify and have redemption, or it will cease to be as prestigious as it is now. That's really a very important point. I would like to stop here again about what you mentioned about being great scientists, but maybe you are a terrible human being. And um, first a question also here, because I think, how do you think maybe psychopaths or sociopaths will be in that position, like BI and having responsibility for life as a postdocs and PhD, or maybe being a committee for uh, deciding who will win or not? And you, I think you had a sort of Professor Jantry Patrick, I think, in, about trace and diversity in science, and I think that's something very important. But I would like to stop here again because when I see the comments about the subject about uh, race diversity or inclusion and diversity, some people think that science is science and you don't have to speak about this point. It's, some people assume in academia and academy that it's just a cosmetic image. So if you can tell us about why they think some people in the academy think inclusion and diversity doesn't make sense and don't believe in, in that subject. And you also mentioned that human also can be have implicit biases and explicit biases. If you can tell us about how this is really complicated, if you have someone who's psychopath and biased, and, and we still have this issue, but I don't know what you think would be solution for that, for, for this problem in the yeah. academy. Yeah. No, it's, it's a legitimate question. And it's funny because I'll have people, my podcast is not political. I don't talk politics. I'll have on people on the far right, the far left. I won't have on, you know, someone who's really odious, psychopath, sociopath, uh, but yeah. I will have on uh, both sides in equal abundances. Mm -hmm. uh, I think science is very liberal nowadays. There are, you know, people of all different genders, of all different orientations, of all different colors, of all different backgrounds, religions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is such a hot button issue that it's almost impossible that people won't be offended by one guest I have on versus another guest. So that's, that's just a, a, an, an issue that we play. Now, I've had on, uh, since we've had in America, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and, uh, and great agitation for positive changes to a very bleak history in America and science. Um, uh, and, and I think what, my, what I've tried to do is, is make it human, make it humanize what the struggles are of these African-American men and women <clears throat> in particular, mostly scientists, um, you know, and, and uh, haven't gotten in, you know, political or, or whatever, but right. to see that they actually do face a different struggle than I face. Now, I might face a different struggle than somebody else face. You might face a different struggle than somebody else. I think science is getting better. Uh, for example, we have explicitly uh, policies meant to encourage and increase the enrollment of African-Americans at this campus that is counteracted and it has been successful under our Chancellor Pradeep Koshla. We've more than doubled the number of African-Americans in just five or so years. That's a historic accomplishment, but it's 3%. It's up from 1.5%. Um, that's not enough. And, uh, and what will happen, Marwa, that's so frustrating is that we're doing so good. We're attracting these brilliant people and then we're a public university. Uh, and we don't, we're not that old. We were only founded in 1960. That was 11 years before I was born. It, it's not like it's a, it, you know, this university like Harvard that goes back 300 years. Uh, and what happens sadly from my perspective is that we cultivate and we get these extremely, um, you know, talented people of all different races, colors, and creeds. Uh, but often a public, a private school like Stanford uh, will come along and say, well, thank you very much for identifying these wonderful candidates. We have, uh, you know, $42 billion endowment. 
uh, versus, you know, San Diego has 700 million, <laughs> uh, it becomes almost impossible to retain, attract, uh, retain the people. It's a very, very difficult um, uh, problem. Also being a young university, we don't have alumni going back to the 1800s like Berkeley or UCLA or to the 1600s in the case of Harvard. And if you went to Harvard, you know, like Professor Lapalmi, uh, my good friend, uh, you will have a higher chance of your kids going to Harvard someday. And, uh, and that's by design. So if you're African-American, same too. My friend Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, she's a professor at University of New Hampshire. Um, you know, if she has children, I, I don't know what, what her situation is, but they could have a higher chance of getting into Harvard because she went there and that means that just because there's, there's only so many, you know, these wonderful students to get, that we would unfortunately not be as competitive. And that's just a reality. But again, we have to work harder and we are. Yeah, that's a good point. But I would like again ask you about how the academy is structured. I mean, you said in your book about this like Hunger Game. And yeah. um, and that's sad because I think, yeah, you're right, there's advances, but still we have issue about this power disparity, for example. And I would like to stress again about the mental health issue because I think you came across, again, as someone who's scared about other human being, not only science, just and neglect emotions. And I also I think it's a story of your supervisor, Andrew Lange, at the suicide in 2010. And you don't know why he did that. Um, but do you think because of the pressure in the academy, you have a lot of thin amount of work for the week, 60 hours you have to work? How yeah. do you see this mental health? Yeah. That's a very good question. You know, the academia never turns off. It's not like I teach three hours a week and that's it. No, I'm in the classroom three hours a week. I'm preparing 18 hours a week. I'm advising my four graduate students, you know, 20 other hours of the week. I've got a family. I've got responsibilities. I've got committees. I've got to hire people. We have to serve on awards. We have to serve on uh, admissions committees. It's, it's, it never ends. If I wanted to, I could work uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the mm -hmm. most important thing for my sanity, and I do want to say very briefly, after my book came out in the fall of 2018, a man uh, who uh, thought he was in the running for the Nobel Prize in economics took his own life after finding out uh, that he did not win the Nobel Prize for very similar work. This is for work revolving around global warming, I believe, mm -hmm. um, climate change and, and economics. And we can't say that losing the Nobel Prize caused him to commit suicide, but his friend said he was despondent about that. And it took place right after the announcement. So I do feel like, uh, I, I, as I say, I don't know if, if my uh, beloved advisor, um, uh, Andrew Lang, took his life in any way because he was overlooked. It is ironic in some sense, his ex-wife won the Nobel Prize in chemistry last year, mm -hmm. uh, Francis Arnold, or in 2018. And uh, that's, uh, they were certainly a power couple and I'm, I'm very happy for her. Uh, mm -hmm. but she's gone through great pains too. And it's just amazing. You know, she lost a son. She had breast cancer. She lost her ex-husband who she was close to, uh, the father of her children. And so um, how do some people react one way and others react another way? It's, it's, hard, it's hard to understand. But getting to your point of the Hunger Games, yes, it never turns off. And for me, I force my students to turn it off. I, I say, I don't want you, I want you to work six days a week, <laughs> but you yeah. may not work seven days a week. Uh, first of all, it's against my religion, uh, Judaism, to make people work uh, seven days a week because we, our tradition is that uh, working seven days a week, no matter how rich you are, you could be Jeff Bezos, you could be Bill Gates, you could be the richest man in the world. 
And if you work seven days a week, our tradition teaches us that you're a slave and that the human being should never be a slave. You're a slave to no one but God and that, that you're not even a slave, you're a servant, but you're, you're, you have free will. And that the way that you exercise it is in my mind, I turn off my phone, I turn mm -hmm. off work, I don't answer emails, I don't do podcasts. Um, and these are things I love. It doesn't feel like work, but still, if I don't take a Sabbath of rest once yeah. a week, who is in charge of my life? If this, this device, I, I don't want that to be the case. So yeah. in my mind, that's the way I hope I teach my students to have a, some amount of work-life balance. Now, the other side of it, um, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Torah, it says that six days a week, you must work. <laughs> so in other words, it, said, it doesn't say like you, you could work six days a week, but you have to take off Saturday. Because what if you don't work any day of the week, then Saturday means nothing to you. Um, and so it says you must work, meaning not that you're a servant, but that you are passionate and that you are researching. You're reading about astronomy in my student's case. You're learning about physics. You're learning about history, about philosophy. Um, six days a week, and it should consume you as a graduate student, because if it doesn't, uh, then, you know, it's, it's actually a good thing. You might find this is not the right track for your life. Mm -hmm. I really like that you, went, you combine a religious perspective like Judaism and, and science. And that's really, it's rare to find this discussion, to be honest, in, in different land. I'm, I'm not making us to be in generalization, but we missed this point. And I, that leads to the question about publish and parish model in academia. You know, you say that you have to work for six days, but this pressure, I, everyone I would speak with, I am pressured to publish. And when I, I see that, if you want to make convention in like in 50 years ago, you can see who won Nobel Prize. They just maybe in two decades, they don't have this amount of publications. You're just focusing in the real science. How do you see publish and perish model comes from and how we can make it perish? Yes, that's a that's a, a very good point. Uh, you know, it's not that old. It's not that long. It's not like um, you know Galileo was publishing in journals, etc. Most of the time, they are publishing books. A lot of times, they are popular books. Uh, Newton, obviously, and then you know, finally, they had the Royal Society, and eventually, they had Nature magazine. It was really the first journal. Uh, and I always point out, you know, there's there are many instances where someone like Einstein, after he won the Nobel Prize, he would write a letter to the editor. He would say, you know, um, actually, a few days ago, a young man named Mr. Mandel came to my office and asked me a question. And this is what I thought about it. And then he went through what's called weak gravitational lensing which he thought would never be detectable. Like many things he said were wrong and mistaken because <laughs> we ended up, did, did, we did detect them. Uh, in fact, we measure them with the observatory pictured behind me at the Simons Observatory uh, is going to measure that. And, and we already have with many of the instruments there currently. Uh, and so uh, it's funny, great people can have great flaws. And uh, certainly Einstein did. He was not rumored to be a great father to his kids. Yep. I wasn't there for him. Now he didn't have this publisher parish. Uh, he made a lot of, um, you know, great accomplishments younger in life. And, and then later in life was kind of uh, a little bit too overcome, as my colleague uh, Sabine Hassenfelder says, by being lost in math, trying to, you know, find a theory of everything from purely mathematical principles, essentially. Uh, but the work, uh, the publisher parish model is not that old. I think a lot of it is going aside because of media like this. Um, I had on, you know, the other day, Sean Carroll, Professor Sean Carroll of Caltech uh, in Pasadena. And we talked about a recent result, an abstract that we both read about what's called cosmic birefringence. It's not so important. It was submitted to physics review letters, which is 
arguably top one or two uh, impact factor journal, a result of many, many years of work by uh, Ichiro Kamatsu and, and his student uh, co-worker in Miami mm -hmm. and uh, Utah Miami. Um, and that work generated a lot of controversy. And then so we started to analyze it. But because it wasn't put on the archive, which is an open source, uh, free publication, no barriers, no hurdles, no hunger games. Uh, we couldn't analyze it because it's not public. And I think that model is going to go away. I don't think, I think the journals like nature, like science are going to have to adapt that science is done nowadays by people working, uh, you know, in, in, in large groups and yeah. working on, on very important uh, projects. And this idea that you have to put the stake in the ground or else you won't win the Nobel Prize should it arise in some cases, mm -hmm. um, as it did for me, I think that model is, is, is going to eventually be replaced. And so I don't think it has much longer before it in its current form perishes. And also before the Nobel Prize perishes in its current form, unless it enacts some of the refor reformation that, that I've proposed and many, many other people, including Nobel Prize winners I've had on my show, like Adam Reese, say they agree with this and nobody disagrees with it, which is the strange thing. Why don't they change it if all these people, including Nobel Prize winners, agree it needs to change? Yeah, that's uh, also a good point. And I'm curious to ask you this question. Do you think... If nothing changed in maybe 10 years, I think we have to think about something beyond academy and industry. Perhaps a new institution, because I think even Eric Van Stein was asking this question, if we have to find something beyond academy and industry, something completely new. Do you think about that? We can make up with new ideas beyond academy, new institution, new structures. I think it's possible. I think right now we have this kind of educational government complex in the United States where most of the funding to do a project like the Simons Observatory is a hundred million dollar project that I am, you know, privileged to co-lead with, uh, with many other colleagues at uh, Penn, Princeton, Berkeley, and elsewhere. And this project couldn't happen without, uh, without private funding in the case of the Simons Foundation. Uh, and in our other projects, Polar Bear, which is also pictured behind me, and, and Alma, pictured way in the distance over there, those are billion-dollar class, or the Alma is at least, a billion-dollar class observatory couldn't be built without, you know, um, universities, without large scientific foundations that back it. So I think in experimental science, it's, it's unlikely to change. In, um, in, in terms of you know, projects with the theoretical side, like Eric is talking about uh, frequently, and by the way, he says hi to you, as well as uh, Ben Shapiro asked me to send you uh, a, a hello. Uh, so uh, you have fans that you don't even know and maybe you'll never meet, maybe you will. Uh, but, uh, but I told them that you follow them both. And, uh, and, and I, think, uh, I think it's a sign that media like this are gonna be more prominent and that we are going to you know, basically have an overwhelming uh, obligation. Because if you want to get funded outside of the academic industrial complex, uh, then you need to bypass it. You need to go to the people that are actually paying for it, right? The NSF in America and the CRC in, in, in Europe or whatever, they don't have millions of dollars. They get it from taxes. And who pays those taxes? Well, it's the citizens. And so if you and I and others like us and Eric, if we can take our message to the citizens, that will start a groundswell. 
And that will say, hey, look, Marwa Alduini is doing this amazing work or Eric Weinstein is doing this amazing work. Why not support it? And maybe we'll need to have, you know, like Patreon for physics, account, you know, or, or what have you. I don't know. But I wouldn't have predicted, you know, what, 10 years ago that someone like me could be talking to someone like you instantaneously across the continent. And then tens of thousands of people will hopefully see our conversation and share and benefit from it. So I believe there are opportunities and it's going to take a smart young person, maybe not young, I don't know, to think of a model outside of the academic industrial complex. Mm -hmm. I think that's really wonderful, Moin. And, and that leaves a question about the podcast, an instant possible podcast. And I, I, I first, before asking the motivation, I think I listened to Professor Gatz uh, Sare in your podcast and he said that how the effect of podcasting or YouTube can influence people in maybe underprivileged countries. And that's really powerful if you look for publication and you look for the podcast and the influence of that. So if you can tell us about the motivation for your podcast, why do you think maybe podcasting can be a life-changing experience for people interested in science? Because some students cannot really afford the fees for studying. I've had that thought a lot, especially with COVID, that um, the, the, the model of education needs to change. And yeah. again, these are all existential threats. If, if mm -hmm. academies don't react and, uh, and take the, the challenge and just try to keep the old way where there's a professor on Zoom talking to a class on Zoom, that, that's, that, that's going to be the end of academia as far as I'm concerned. We need to be active. We need to be uh, doing, uh, doing virtual reality, doing augmented reality. I mean, as I said, um, Professor, uh, not Professor, Dr. Peter Diamandis came on my show at the beginning of the pandemic. And I said to him, look, I'm a pretty good teacher, but I'm not as smart as Galileo or, you know, Isaac Newton or, you know, people of that nature. And wouldn't my students like to talk to them? I mean, how, how cool would it be to talk to them or have them here or have them directly there? Uh, and there's no reason that you can't. Uh, and some say that we are in a simulation. I don't want to talk about that yet. But, but, but the fact is we have the technology nowadays with Oculus, with, with very inexpensive things, much cheaper than a textbook. Uh, an Oculus is cheaper than some of my textbooks that are used at, in, in university. So we have to adapt or again, it's going to be an existential threat to the to the academy look the academy has been in place uh there was a university in egypt in uh i think the year 1000 and then there was a university in bologna in italy in in, in the year 1082 mm -hmm. and essentially it was some guy standing up and scratching a piece of rock on a blackboard another rock and that hasn't really changed that much in, in a thousand years now how many other things haven't changed in a thousand years <laughs> very yeah. few and so if we don't change it, that's the risk. And so I agree with, with Professor Sad and, and, and people like Eric um, who are reaching into and thinking about different approaches and including going popular, like uh, Gad has been on uh, the Joe Rogan uh, experience. Uh, Eric's been on that many times. And Eric says to me, like, I don't think that people are going to understand the, you know, 14 dimensional hot vibration that's present in his theory of everything. But, um, but physicists are terrible at using the public relations material that they have and by him going on Joe Rogan, 9.4 million people saw a fiber bundle, you know, for the first, probably the only time they'll ever see it. Do they understand it? Absolutely not. And he knows that. But to show them that, and maybe there'll be 0.1%, you know, mm -hmm. you get 10,000 people, kids interested in the hop vibration, if maybe only to prove them wrong. 
but but still, Marwa, isn't that a magical thing? And so I always think back, I had on Carl Sagan's daughter, Sasha Sagan, she wrote a book. I had on his widow, Andrurian, who's the Cosmos um, Next Generation series producer and writer. And both of them, I reminded that Carl said, he said once that a book is proof that humans can work magic. A book is the words of the of an author who might have died centuries ago, and you're hearing their voice in your head today. Now, you and I, this conversation will be available for generations. And so I say nowadays, a podcast is proof that human beings can work magic. Yeah, that's a really wonderful point. And uh, I agree with everything you said. Yeah. And if you can tell us about, uh, do you think ego sometimes is important? Um... As you scientist, is egos important? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Again, uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very influenced by my Judaic culture, and in Judaism, we believe we have two different inclinations. We have an inclination to do good, and we have an inclination to do evil. Remember, I don't know if you ever saw these cartoons. It'll be like a little devil over here, a little yeah. angel over here, and that's kind of the way we think about it. So, but sometimes it's it's some of each, and I think this is like the Chinese yin yang symbol. Within the black, there's a bit of white. Within the white, there's a bit of black. We have a hybrid nature. We have a dualistic spirit. Uh, whether And I don't care if people believe or not. That's really not, I'm not proselytizing, I don't care. But that sometimes your inclination to achieve, to win a Nobel Prize, uh, sometimes that can do good. Even though at heart, I believed it was a form for myself of idolatry, of worshiping idols, a gilded graven image literally has a picture of Alfred Nobel that you bow down to in front of a king to receive. In my mind, there's one king and it's not on earth. And so thinking about uh, the, but, but still we can do great good. And yeah. I, don't, I don't criticize the people that won it. And I think, you know, I just talking to Sir Roger Penrose, winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize in physics. He's worked for 70, you know, 50, 60 years, worked with Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. He's using the prestige of the Nobel Prize to advance his cosmological model. And now he got a paper accepted that had been rejected for many, many years. Hmm, I wonder why that is, Marwa. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and I'm hopefully going to work with him, you know, to look for trying to prove him wrong. And I've told him this to his face. I said, Roger, I don't think you're interpreting the uh, analysis of the BICEP2 data properly, but I love you. I love what you do. Uh, and I want to help you. And I, even if it means proving you're wrong, and he's all for it. So I, I think that's the good that can be done from an ego. From a, from a perspective, not of haughtiness, because no good can come of that, but instead of honest use of the gifts, blessings, and prestige that you have, I think good can come of it. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to ask you also, because I, I know you don't have too much time, how we deal with criticism? Because I thought that if you know, some people just, for Eric Weinstein, for example, uh, and Stephen Wolfram, uh, there's a lot of controversy about they are not science. Uh, yeah, I mean, not an academy, sorry. So, and some people don't accept their sorts or their ideas. And you are open about that. You're open for discussion. How we deal with yeah. criticism? Because I think you highlight something about how you communicate with public, uh, for example, and science communication, and how you accept people outside academy to have a discussion. Because that's all something I think I, I respected what you're doing, that you have open platform for anyone to discuss science. Yes. As long as it's legitimate, as long as it's not, you know, biased or prejudiced, or they have some, some really odious ideas, I will investigate it. And I now have a platform that um, with many, many treasured fans and people that subscribe and that I love and I engage with every single one of them. 
Uh, and now it's gotten to the point where I'll have Nobel Prize winners asking me to come on my podcast. Mm -hmm. And I don't take that lightly. And I'm not saying, oh, they're the best. I'm the best because I have a Nobel Prize. Look, I wrote a book that kind of criticizes it. But the point is that, that um, these people deserve respect. And the very first question that you asked me was a very important one. How do I define myself? And remember, I said, you know, besides father and husband, curious and passionate and scholarly. I love to learn. I feel like learning is like when you were a kid, you probably play with Legos or you probably played with the, with the puzzles I did. And I always loved solving it and then breaking it apart and then doing it again because the, the thrill of the solution is just so magical. And, and it is allowing us to take ourselves away from the pain that daily life presents us and really get back to that purity of when we were children, exploring. Children are natural scientists, I always say. They're naturally curious, they're passionate. I've got a lot of kids and I love them all. And, and I see them playing and then I say, well, they're kind of like scientists too because they're jealous, they're petty, they don't play well, they want, they're possessive of their toys, they won't share. Even I have twins and they fight like you know, they're strangers sometimes. And why is that? Um, and it's funny because the girl kind of dominates the boy. It's kind of cute. Uh, but, but anyway, the, the point that I'm making is that let's, let's let the, the beautiful aspects of childlike wonder of scientists bloom. And so I, when I talk to these scientists, it's like I'm talking to, I see them as little kids. I see uh, Professor Sarah Seeger of MIT and she's mm -hmm. talking about life on Venus. And yeah, she's taking a lot of heat and criticism for it. And, and, but I see the playfulness in her eyes and I'm hoping to have her on my podcast talk about her book where she mm -hmm. talks about her childhood. Let's, let's, let's try and take some, some of the good aspects of childhood, uh, you know, without the petty criticisms, but take the honest ones. And, and in that way, get back to the purity, the essence of science, engineering, and, and math. Mm, that's great. So to question, and we end because I know you don't have so much time. I would like to ask you what maybe is the most important quality you have to maintain while being in academy, something you have to maintain for the journey in academy and podcasting yeah. as well. I think, it's a, I think it's a long journey. And I think you cannot do it if you don't love the work. That's mm -hmm. why I kind of use as a test when I'm interviewing a new graduate student, I say, what do you do in your free time? And I love to hear, well, I climb, you know, rocks and I go skiing and those, those are great. Those are important. Um, I, I, I really am, am delighted when I hear I read Brian Greene, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, I read popular science. I read, uh, you know, Karl Popper. I read, you know, whatever. Um, I love learning when I'm, uh, when I'm walk, you know, just lounging around. I'm learning about science or I used to work on my car. You know, one of my uh, students, she, her, her parents have a, like a, a manufacturing business that she used to work in and she loved tools and she's an amazing, now she's a professor herself. And how amazing is that? Not only that, Marwa, she has a graduate student, uh, a female graduate student herself that's now the 19th generation of my academic tree that I can trace back to 1597. This is all because she's an incredibly passionate person. Her graduate, this is Darcy Barron at the University of New Mexico and her student Kayla and having them in this chain is an awesome responsibility for people like me and you because um, in the Russian language, the word uh, scientist, and I think it holds for engineer too, but the word scientist means someone who was taught. It means that you and I received teaching. It may not have been perfect, but we were taught. That means we have an obligation. If we are scientists to create new scientists, we must teach. So I'd say the most essential quality is to be a good teacher, you need to be a good student. And to be a good student, you need to be relentlessly, passionately curious. That's wonderful. And lastly, what was this advice was given to you with a personally, professionally, 
most life changing? Uh, I, I think for me, the, the most life changing advice that I had, uh, you know, really came from a, a rabbi. When <laughs> sounds strange because he, he's not a scientist, but it was that there's more to supporting a family than than just making money. There's more to the um, to the process of being a leader with your with your life partner, with your spouse, um, husband, wife, whatever. Uh, there's more to that than just making money and and having having you know financial stability. You have to have intellectual. You have to have spiritual stability. You must be a leader in uh, your family's course, both you and your partner. And yeah. because children need that, they need that stability. They need, they, they crave stability and innocence, protecting their innocence. It's so yeah. incredibly important to me. And if you can preserve their innocence, then you will preserve the bandwidth the, the resources for them to be curious and not have to worry about their parents yelling and fighting in front of them as I did. And, and the other challenges that many kids have far worse than I did. So for me, the best advice is, is, is strive to be a leader of your family and your community, be a mentor and, uh, and be teachable, be coachable. And in that way, you will succeed. That's really wonderful. And I think that's the core for me problems, how you have a, a good human being. So I want to know uh, three things. In yeah. your field, what is the key core finding of soft robotics? Um, first of all, that appeals to you. And what's like the, um, what's like the theory of everything in your field? In, in our field, it's, you know, particles make up the universe. They interact by forces and fields. Um, and, and they comprise the, the largest structures in the universe. For you, what drew you to, to robotics? And then what is the animating principle of soft robotics? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question because I think that's the debate of the field because, as you may know, soft robotics idea that we wanted to go from traditional robot, which is rigid and maybe sometimes not safe for human interaction, we want to make safe soft robots. However, there are misconceptions because not every soft robot is safe. If you imagine you have like a belt or something from very elastic material and very high speed, it will cause harm. But if you ask about what is really the core or maybe everything, I think that's the debate we have in the field. If we have to make a soft material, do we have to understand the physics of this material? And is this material intelligent? I mean that, should we use passive material like silicon, which is available over the shelf, everyone can use it? Or we have to design smart material that can compute its intelligence and can have actuation and sensing. So if we look to the nature, like if we see inspiration from the nature, how these animals or the creature move and actuate and heal and grow their parts. This is all inspiration. So that's the debate here. As robotics, you see that sometimes that's the debate we have even in the broadcast. What is the missing pieces between material science who develop the material and, the, and, and, and also robotists? Because I think if you wanted to design, for example, um, a finger like, like human beings, so you ask yourself, what kind of material I have to use? Is this passive material and I have to use like a motor and actuate it with a cable and make it bending and deform in such a way? And for me, because I have this experience work in a smart material, and what I mean a smart material is for anyone who's not in the field, that this material can have responses towards stimulus. It could be stimulus to the light, it can be responsive towards the heat, it could be voltage. And when you, this material have a stimulus, it can get responses like mechanical performance. So that's a question here, how we design them, how we can design this material to, ha to be have a, a function of, like actuation or sensing. So that's, um, I think, from my humble point of view, that 
a core point here is the material science. And uh, if we understand the physics of the material and how we can use this material in a certain way so that we can design uh, a finger or a trunk or any function. So that's, I think, the core. And uh, it sometimes is underappreciated because, as you know, in robotics, we don't have so much expertise in material. And that's make a gap between the communication between material science and robotists. So now there's a trend that we need to make like, like material ro robotists. So they have the both knowledge and both fields. So, and then you can, if you understand what you do, you can design reproducible robotics, soft robotics, with the function you're looking for. So the short answer is the material science, I think. However, some well, robotists don't think about that. So you still think, um, I just, it's too technical here, but I think that's uh, the debate still in the field. Uh, whether we have to understand the material. But I think everything starts from understanding the physics of the material and how to model them and have a descriptive model. And then you can design what you want given an application. And what drew you to it? Did you have an influence as a child? Were you the kind of kid that was playing with blocks, with Legos, with uh, yeah. animals? <laughs> I don't know. What, what drew you to it and what uh, keeps you invested through the challenges of being an, a young academic? I think that's a good question. I, to be honest, um, maybe I'm not the best one to can answer this question because I didn't have a lot of uh, exposure for that. I was more interested in um, art and and drawing. But I, I think in, in, in school, I have low self-esteem. I didn't even believe in myself at all. And maybe because I was the first engineer in my family. And I had a lot of rough time in childhood, to be honest. I, I didn't enjoy it. So maybe that's hard. But I think I came to understand that I'm really fascinated by mathematics, for example, in high school and physics. And that's make me a lot of Boston confidence. And uh, I think, yeah, that's, yeah, maybe sometimes it could be, uh, you know, a turning moment in my life in high school that I, I can do it. I, I, I am fascinated by, by mathematics and, and also biology. So, yeah, sometimes you can discover your, I don't say it's superpower, but sometimes, as is earlier, I highlighted that how childhood plays a significant role. I think that's absolutely right. And the teacher as well plays a significant role. So if the teacher is so thumbsing in you and encourage you, that's be the momentum for your life. Do you, uh, do you feel like it's an obligation for you to someday become a teacher? What are your aspirations in terms of yeah. extending and leveraging your accomplishments to benefit the world? That's a good question. Actually, I, I am holding a tenured academic position in my home country. And it's different from US and Europe. And actually, I left it. I'm not particularly leave, but I left it just because I want to have a more expertise and also I wanted to like I consider the freedom I love freedom and I, what I mean about freedom I don't like so much politics incorporated in academy so yeah maybe it's risky for me because I know when I came that everyone is looking for tenure but I wasn't tenure and it was for me like a prison I know it sounds <laughs> crazy for people but yeah I know it's it's security but sometimes if you're in a position and a place an environment doesn't match what you're looking for Sometimes you can take a risk and maybe it can makes you go to places you never expected to be. Maybe it's a risk. I know some people will say it's a crazy, but that's me. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to put it. And I love teaching so much. Yeah. Yeah. You have a natural a gift for teaching. Uh, I've listened to many of your podcasts, uh, the IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Last question that I ask all my guests, and I, I know I'm your guest, but it's kind of a, uh, what do we call it? A swap, you know, in, in America, they, there's two TV shows and they'll cross over. Um, I want to ask you, 
uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke said that the only way to find out the limits of the possible is to venture a bit beyond into the impossible. And that's how I came up with the name of the podcast for the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. I want to ask you, as a younger person, maybe 10, 20 years ago, just starting your academic uh, career, what mm-hmm. seemed impossible to you? Maybe about life, uh, faith, uh, whatever. What, what seemed impossible to you that now seems possible through the lens of time and looking yeah. back? I think that's really profound and wonderful question. And I think um, I'm really admire the, the aspects that you're concerned about how the scientists have to be highlighting the emotional side. And I, for me, I, I struggle a lot. I struggled... Uh, yeah, everyone is struggled, but I think for me, because I, I lost my mom when I was 19, and that was a shock for me, to be honest. It just was uh, was hard. And I even was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, so it was hard for me. And I also take care of my family, and I become ill at, for a certain time. And then at, I'm 29 now, so at age 26, my grandma, she used everything for me, and she also passed away. And that was for me... And my relationship with my father, I respect him, but it wasn't really great. But I think that's something, to be honest, I struggle with because, yeah, you want to do something, but sometimes the time and events happen in your life is like dragging you. And you try to challenge that. It is hard. It is hard because everyone, everyone has a story. And, but sometimes it's so hard and... You just want to achieve something. And uh, yeah, it's just maybe it's a growing process because I learned how to be uh, happy with my myself. Most of the time, I, I just maybe not happy, but uh, I'm, I think I learned that how to accept being by yourself, being independent. I think life is a, listens is a great experience. And I think to answer the question how to push the impossible, I think one of the things is, is uh, I like it that imagination. If you have imagination, I want to be in a certain place. I wanted to achieve that. And I remember I remember vividly that I was telling my late mom that I don't want to be an ordinary girl. I want to add something. And that's, maybe I look ordinary for people, but inside me, I'm not ordinary girl. And, and maybe I'm not smartest because I know there are many smart people. I'm just trying to learn, as you mentioned. I want to learn because there's a lot of things I want to learn. But I think the most important thing, and that's a, a quote from the book of uh, The Power of Positive Thinking of Norman Vincent Peale, that positive pattern thought can change the fact. And I think that's really powerful. If you imagine something in a good way and you want it so much, which it could be impossible, it would be possible because of the positive pattern thought. So I think that's related to energy as well. Yeah, so that's how I think uh, the answer for me now how to be mm. the impossible people possible. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, and I, I love that you connected to imagination as the uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, Center for Human Imagination. All of our curiosity yeah. goes in that direction. Marwa, you are an inspiration. You are destined for great things. I follow you and I listen to you. I learn from you. Keep up uh, the wonderful work on the IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. And I hope we can do it again, maybe uh, in, in a little while. And uh, maybe someday we'll do an we'll actual live stream in person. I would love to meet you someday in person and benefit from, from uh, the interaction. Marwa, thank you so much. I'm going to run off to another podcast. <laughs> Good luck. And see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you.